That whole idea is uh, compressed into this one statement in Deuteronomy where Moses is speaking to the people uh, before he's about to leave. He's 120 years old. He's been with them for over 40 years and they're about now to enter the land and so he's rehearsing everything that God has done and man it is warm so if you don't mind <laughs> I'm gonna make myself comfortable hallelujah um, so okay oh better hallelujah praise the Lord um, so he he compresses all that thinking into this one verse in Deuteronomy 6:23, and Moses says and God brought us out from there, speaking of Egypt and slavery, so that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. So God works in a two-step way. He brings us out from bondage, but then we need to enter what he has for us. And so coming out of bondage is not at the same time entering in to the promises of God. Coming out of a bad situation doesn't automatically put you into a good situation. Coming out of bad decisions doesn't automatically equate to a good decision. And so once you've been set free, you need to then get yourself invested in the right things in life, get yourself invested in what God's will and God's program is so that your life is moving forward and, and God's doing something through your life. And that's basically the idea that he's sharing. We, however, focusing on the fact that the Lord facilitated this whole thing through, two, through a savior system, the first being Moses, second being Joshua. Now, I want to present to you today to bring focus to our message today. And the message today is entitled Redeemer King. Jesus is known by many titles, but probably one of the most common uh, references by which we worship and acknowledge him is Lord, Redeemer, King. Redeemer, King. So we're going to look at that today. And in order to do that, I'd like to pose a question. Why does God choose to work through two human saviors to redeem his people from slavery and then lead them into the promised land when he could act directly and do it himself and there would be no flub-ups? Why didn't God just come down out of the sky? Why didn't God just burst into Pharaoh's throne room and say, I am the living God? And it, there would be no need to use frogs, death, no death angel, no turning the rivers into blood. Uh, all God would have to do is just show up and just take command of the scene and say to the children of Israel, get your stuff up and follow me. And take them wherever it was that he wanted to take them up into the promised land. Why didn't God do that? It would be so much more efficiently. And you, you might think that's a silly question. Um, but we ask questions like that today. Why is all this stuff going on in the world? Why doesn't God just intervene? Why does the Lord seem to work his plans out through the, the faulty and risky agents human agents that he chooses to work through. Why does God do that? And God risks being misunderstood by those that watch him work through human events. He risks people messing up his plans or twisting his word, misrepresenting him, and all of those things happen, don't they? Yeah. They all happen. 
So why did God choose to use these two men, Moses and Joshua? Lord knows they weren't perfect. They made mistakes. The answer, as simple as it is, is profound. You need to grab it because nothing I say after this will make any sense if you don't grab onto this. Here's the reason. It's because God is working ultimately to restore Adam's fallen authority back to mankind and not just improve the Hebrews' situation. If God wanted just, if the plan or the goal was just to improve your situation, God could just jump in and do it. But God's ultimate long-range purpose is to rehabilitate the fallen authority of Adam. Now, if you remember in the garden, God put the world, the earth, under Adam's authority. He said, rule over it and have dominion. I want you to tend this garden and give increase and just work it until it spreads out and takes over the whole world. Now, <clears throat> that authority that God gave to Adam was part of Adam's relationship with God. God came down every day, and they sat and had tea together. Fellowship, how's it going? How's the wife? Oh, she's right here. She's doing good, honey. God's here. And they had this relationship, this communion going. So the authority that he had, the Bible says all authority comes from God. The devil doesn't have any authority. He's a rebel. He's using, well, we'll get to that in a moment. But not to get off the trail, Understand, when Adam chose the devil who tempted his wife, yeah. he sublet. Imagine taking a lease on a house. You sign a contract. The owner of the house holds you responsible for that house. You've got a one-year lease on that house. And partway through, you decide to sublet your house. You decide, well, I'd like to go and kind of get out and do stuff. So I'm going to lease to this dude that I met on the street and he's come in and I had him for dinner and I can't get rid of him now. So I'm just going to go sublet to him. And so now the owner of the house you are leasing and renting now has to deal with a criminal who's living in your house. Good luck getting that rent paid. He's trashing your house. He's, he is operating a criminal enterprise out of that house. It's all under the lease that's got your name on it. Who's responsible for that house? You are. You're the one held responsible. So that's one kind of very limited example, but one way of looking at what happened. When Adam brought himself under Satan and allowed Satan to subplant, to undermine what God had said by speaking to his wife, and saying, well, did God really mean that? Is that what God said? And to suggest that God was lying and withholding something. And Eve believed it, and of course she took that bait, and then Adam joined her, and the two of them subjected themselves to Satan. They forfeited their relationship with God, and the authority they had to rule and have dominion, those were the words God used, rule and have dominion over the earth, that authority now became Satan's authority. If you look around at the world today and say, why does all this murder and mayhem and backstabbing and disease and sickness, where does it come from? Jesus said about Satan, 2,000 years ago, he was a murderer from the beginning. We are seeing the devil manhandle the world with Adam's authority. He's using the authority of man 
That's why he had to try to lie and connive and trick Eve. He didn't have any power to walk into the garden and just take over and do anything. He had to get Adam to lay that authority in his hand. So Adam gave up that position of authority. God's ultimate plan, back to Moses and Joshua, is that it would do no good in the ultimate purpose of God for the Lord to just go into Pharaoh's court, kick Pharaoh's behind, do what he's going to do, because God is all authoritative, and he can do whatever he wants. But that leaves Adam still broken without authority. God gave authority to Adam. And listen, his authority was baked into his design. Adam was made in the image and likeness of God. He was created as an extension of God's authority. So it is his very purpose and design to have the authority to rule and reign and have dominion. So God is not going to back off of his original design. He's not going to break his word and go back on his word and say, you know what, they've messed things up down here. I'm going to go in and I'm just going to straighten it out. Instead, his plan calls for I need to bring man back into harmony and oneness with myself and restore, recapture and restore. Let man recapture that authority. So God uses saviors like Moses and Joshua. He is rehabilitating the authority of man. Now, let us stop for a moment and let's take a little side journey hundreds of years, about 400 years back in time from Moses, and we, rent, we remember Abraham, the first man that God made a covenant with. And God makes a covenant with Abraham saying, I am going to bring salvation and redemption into the earth, but I, I need you to enter into a blood covenant with me so that the two of us become one. And so Abraham and God enter a blood covenant. So that now all that Abraham possesses belongs to God, but all that God possesses belongs to Abraham. If they operate within the terms of that covenant, they have access both to each other's liabilities and to each other's assets. So when Abraham gets into a battle, if he's walking in fellowship with God, Abraham's enemies become God's enemies. And Abraham can look to the Lord for victory over his enemies that rise up against him. And God can call equally upon Abraham to go do his business that God wants done because they're in covenant with one another. My wife and I entered into that covenant um, 45 years ago. I do the math real quick in my mind. Doesn't, doesn't matter that two weeks ago was our, uh, a couple weeks ago was our anniversary. So at any rate, we entered into that covenant 45 years ago, and the two became one. She took on all of my assets, which were considerable. <laughs> and she also took on all of my liabilities, which she's still dealing with. And I also took on all of her assets, which were significantly more than mine. And I also took on her liabilities. And that's what, re that's what covenant relationship is. So when I'm in trouble, she's there. When she's in trouble, I'm there. We are one. Hallelujah. So that's a blood covenant. Amen? So, all right. You need to understand then, 
Abraham is called by God to sacrifice his son up on Mount Moriah. And he takes his son Isaac up, his only son, his, his miracle son that God had given him. When Abraham was 100 and Sarah was 91 years old, they have Isaac, whom the Lord says, through Isaac's loins, the Savior of the world will come. So this boy's got to live. He can't die. Understood? God's got to bring the Savior through him. But God says to Abraham, I want you to take your son up on Mount Moriah and I want you to give him back to me. Abraham is ab abhorrent. The idea of, of killing his son, but he knows that God's challenged him to do it. How could God condone such a thing? He's got a moral dilemma, but he uses his obedience to God to override even the moral dilemma. And he goes up on Mount Moriah just as he's about to sink the knife into his son. The Lord speaks through an angel out from behind him and says, Stop, now I know that you truly believe me, for you are willing to do what? Give your only son. Your act of giving your only son obligates me to give my only son. That's the way covenant works. Hallelujah. And so he said, Because you don't withhold your son, I will not withhold my son. And of course, hundreds of years later, God's son, hallelujah, the father robed in flesh, comes into the world as the Savior, the Redeemer King, Jesus. So you understand that the reason why God uses these two men, Moses and Joshua, is he's working through man. Because he's trying to set up a situation where he can come. And one day a man will come that will be sinless. One day a man that will come and they will call him Messiah. He will be the God of heaven who is perfect and never sins and wrestles back from Satan that lease of authority that God once gave. No man could get that back that once Adam and Eve lost it, no man could get it back because everyone's born in sin. Everyone sins and fails. So nobody could walk in righteousness before God. You see, the authority that God gave man is part of our relationship with God. It doesn't work. Unless you are in connection, perfect harmony and connection with the Father. So that's why you can take those verses that talk about casting out demons, laying hands on the sick, and you can go do that all day long and nothing will happen if you're not walking in right harmony and right relationship and obedience to the Father. That authority works through your relationship with the Father. and That was the problem. So God calls um, on the Abrahamic covenant. He acts on the Abrahamic covenant when he calls Moses and Joshua to give their lives, essentially. He calls Moses and Joshua both to lay down their lives, give their lives in acting in behalf of God so that God could later send Jesus to act in behalf of man. And so that's why God sent those two saviors, Moses, to get them out of Egypt and across the wilderness. Joshua to take them into the promised land. Because one day, one like Moses and one like Joshua would come in the person of Jesus. Bring them out of the slavery to sin. Bring them into the promises of God. And he would have full authority and full power to you reunite us and be the true Redeemer King. So that's the picture that I want to paint for you this morning. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Let's talk first about Moses. The unique thing about Moses is Moses really represents Jesus the Redeemer. His entire ministry is all about redeeming 
those slaves back into connection with God and getting them out from underneath the slavery to Pharaoh, who is a type of Satan, if you will, or a type of the world. So their lives, as hard and harsh as they were, are symbolic of living in the world as sinners under the domain of Satan. They are meant to be the children of God, but they're not living in, as the children of God. They don't know God. And so God sends a man to redeem them. The word redeem means to go and buy back. And so Moses, in, assess, in essence, has been empowered by God to purchase back the Hebrews back into fellowship with God. And this is where this call takes place. You're familiar with it. If you haven't read it, you saw the movie with Charlton Heston. And Exodus 3, 7 and 8 says, And the Lord said, Out of the burning bush, I have surely seen the affliction of my people, which are in Egypt, and I have heard their cry by reason of their taskmasters. For I know their sorrows, and I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians." And to bring them up out of that land into a good land that is large. Unto a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen to the love of a father. I know their sorrows. And I am come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians. If God came down to deliver him, why didn't he just go all the way and do it himself? Because remember... His purpose is to do it through us. To do the work through us restores us back to the authority that we have. Remember, God said to Abraham, you are the king. I mean, to uh, Adam, essentially, you're the king of the earth. I put the earth under your domain. Rule. He's talking to a king, isn't he? When God talks to Adam, he's talking to a king. Adam was the first king of the earth. Rule, have dominion over the earth. He says to Adam. So now, the devil is acting as the king of the world. Where did he get that crown? Where did he get that scepter rule? He got it from Adam. And Adam needs to take it back. That's why Paul writes about Jesus and says, Jesus is the second Adam. A second Adam came into the world sinless to take that crown, the kingship, back from the devil. Take that scepter back. Somebody say, praise the Lord. So now Jesus, when Jesus comes, like Moses, who was sent to Egypt, he is God. And as it says, uh, when Moses was being informed by God, I know their sorrows. Don't you hear that through Jesus? Jesus comes into the world. You can hear the compassion, the love. I know their sorrows, and I am coming to deliver you. Those four Gospels are all about that. You see that characteristic of Jesus the Redeemer bringing us back. So as the Lamb of God, He delivers us from Satan's control and He becomes our Redeemer, restoring Adam's lost position with the fathers. Essentially what He did at Calvary's cross and when He rose from the dead. Like Moses, with that rod of God that God gave Him. Remember Roses, Moses, Roses. Moses brought all the authority of God to bear upon Egypt with that rod and then used it to part the Red Sea. God's authority was symbolized in that rod. Like Moses, Jesus demonstrates the all-powerful love of God triumphing over every disease, all human dysfunction. 
even death, nothing is safe from his presence. Blindness, crippledness, leprosy, even people dead in the grave four days and decomposing. Nothing is safe. Life is swallowing up death. We see the redeeming power of our Redeemer Jesus and nothing can resist Him. Nothing can stand before Him. Not a single thing that Adam lost can stay lost once Jesus gets a hold of it. Somebody say praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So Jesus' authority, like the rod of God in the courts of Pharaoh, Moses throws down the rod, turns into a serpent. Everyone goes, oh, God must be with him. Pharaoh goes, cheap trick. My guys can do that. He calls for two of his flunky magicians, and they throw down a couple sticks, and they turn into serpents. But then, how many of you saw the movie? <laughs> you know what happens. They got it right out of the Bible. The rod of God that, that turned into a, a serpent, a snake, ate the other two. Life devours and swallows up. The devil said, oh, I can do that. This is what I've got. God says, I'll eat every bit of it and make it go away. So it says in 1 Corinthians 15 and 54, death is swallowed up in victory. So Jesus is our redeemer, just as Moses Redeem the children of Israel. So that's what God wanted us to see in the career of Moses. Now Joshua. We come to Joshua. Moses fades off the scene. Joshua rises as the new redeemer. And we've already covered this in, in the subsequent weeks, or, or previous weeks, about why there was a change of leadership and why it was necessary. They had to see a different face of a Savior, a different face of God. He, he had, they had to go from the mother who mothered little children, taking them by the hand in Moses, to the commander, the leader, who's now leading them as they step into responsibility and enter the promised land. Now God's not just going to drop miracles and do everything for them. They're going to have to fight battles, but God's going to work through their obedience. They'll fight battles, but they'll win as long as they stay in fellowship with God. And so they're entering the higher purpose of God. God brings a different type of Savior in the person of Joshua who leads them. So Joshua's connection with God, like Moses connected to God at the burning bush, he also has an experience where he encounters God. And in that experience, it defines who Joshua is and the type of Joshua that we see in Jesus. It's recorded in Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 through 15. And the Bible says before they encounter and go up against the very first city, the great walled city of Jericho, He's walking out, it sounds like he's out in the country somewhere, walking around, probably looking at this promised land. And all of a sudden he turns and he sees a great angel standing there, who the Bible describes as a man with a sword, and the sword's drawn. And now listen to what happens. When Joshua was near Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, <clears throat> Are you for us or are you for our adversaries? Now let me just park on that question for a moment. 
You got to think about Joshua. Joshua at this point realizes he's been now made the commander of Israel, got a couple million people to lead, and he sees that his job, to Joshua 5, he sees that his job is basically to lead God's people into the promised land and lead them through these battles, beginning with Jericho. And so he's a man of war, a man of victory. And he is going to lead them in these battles. So his mind is all about the conflicts that lay before him. So he sees everything in terms of are you for us or are you for them? It's all an us versus them scenario as Joshua has entered the promised land. But God meets him before he goes to the first place of testing, which is Jericho. And he sees the angel with the sword drawn, and I bet he's probably thinking, because I can't really picture in my mind the angel of, of God, particularly this one who is the commander of the Lord's army, as kind of some wimpy, you know, Errol Flynn kind of with a little thin, little whipping little sword in his hand. I, I kind of see a more of a Dwayne Johnson, the rock. You know, Amen. and he's got some, you know, 75 pound hacking device, they call a sword. And this guy can do damage. And so Joshua sees him and the first thing he says, are you on our side or are you on their side? And I can just imagine what's going on in his mind. Listen to what God says through the angel. The angel responds and says, neither, but I am come as the commander of the army of the Lord. And now, behold, I am here. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, listen to these words, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off the sandals of your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Where have we heard that before? At the burning bush. God faces Moses through a burning bush as the Redeemer. But now the same God faces Joshua, who's to lead the people into the promised land as the commander of heaven's army. And he turns Joshua's head a little bit and reorients Joshua's vision and makes certain that Joshua doesn't take one more step thinking that life is about them and us. That this is not about me fighting and getting what I need, even if it's what God wants me to have. But I have entered into the promised land, which is God's kingdom that he is sharing with me. Here's where we begin to understand the dynamic of this new kind of leadership in Joshua. The promised land was promised because God owned it. It belonged to God. God wasn't simply saying, this is Abraham's old house. You can have this place, Abraham owns it. No, I gave it to Abraham forever, and I'm now giving it to you. The promised land belongs to Jesus. And so he's willing to share the land with you. That's what the angel is saying to Joshua. Make sure you understand. I haven't come here to be a mercenary in your battles. I have come here as the captain of heaven's army. 
You've stepped into heaven's territory. This land belongs to God. You're not fighting for your purposes. This is the kingdom of God. Hallelujah. This is the kingdom of God. Are you listening to me? So the commander of the Lord's army reorients and refocuses him on the fact that the promised land belongs to God. And now Joshua's primary call is not just to go and check off the list. All right, we got Jericho, we got Ai, we've got these cities, and get the people all settled into their new place. His primary call is to reorient and connect the people of God to God as their king. So in the type of Joshua, Jesus shows up as the king of the earth. How did he get that title? First of all, Jesus, after defeating Satan, reclaims Adam's fallen authority to be the king of the earth. Jesus is called the second Adam because he recaptures what Adam lost. When you see Jesus healing the sick and raising the dead, you see him working in a blended authority, the authority of the almighty I am, the eternal God, because he's the word made flesh. And you see him operating with the fallen authority of Adam. And that's why in John chapter 14 and verse 12, before Jesus is crucified, he says to you and I, the things that you see me do, shall you do in greater because I go to the Father. The significance of going to the Father is that when I go to the Father, you go to the Father with me. When I rise up and heaven receives me, they will receive me as the second Adam, the Son of Man and God blended together. And I am the prototype of the new creation. You that believe and follow me, you will be new creations. And I will impart to you and I will cover you with my authority, I will install by the Holy Ghost a new being in you. You will be a new creation with new authority. All that you've seen me do in the past three and a half years, I've been test driving this thing and I'm going to give you the keys. <laughs> Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Don't bugger it up. I'm going to give you the keys. It's called the new creation. It's called the sons of God. I'm going to give you the authority. What is the... What is the thing that makes this work? You are made one with the Father. You live a life of obedience to God. He is living in you. He is working through you. Hallelujah. And so the authority that Adam lost is now restored to us as we take up our cross and follow Jesus and obey Him. Hallelujah. Can you say amen? Jesus never took a vacation from the Father, by the way. Jesus never took a day off. Praise the Lord. Jesus never said, healing is closed for today. The shop's closed. Come Monday. This is a day of rest. Jesus was on 24-7. Jesus obeyed the Father continuously. That's why He was up in the mountains praying at night, because a new day with new challenges would arrive in the morning. And He had to be ready. And so we have the picture, hallelujah, of the new creation in Jesus Christ. He's man walking in the business of God as well as God walking in the business of man. Somebody say praise the Lord. Praise let me say, and let me ask this question, who really saw Jesus as the king better than Peter did? You know, Peter is a great example for all of us because... 
Peter became instantly discouraged when he first met Jesus. Jesus tells him, go out in the boat and drop your net. I know you've been fishing all night long, haven't caught anything. But drop your nets for a catch of fish. Peter said, Lord, I've been out here all night. You know, I, I respect preachers and everything, but I'm a fisherman. You're a preacher. You don't know what you're talking about. Jesus said, humor me. Just go on out and do it. He said, drop the nets over there. He dro they dropped the net, and you know the story. They encompass such a great catch of fish, the nets begin to break, and they're trying to drag it into shore. Now, it's obvious immediately to him, this guy comes from God. And so Jesus says to him, leave your nets and your fishing gear. Come and follow me. Come and enter into the promised land. Come and walk with me. Come and join my purpose. Peter immediately says, Lord, I'm a sinful man. You see how I reacted to these things. And I'm not worthy. And he tries to get away. And the Lord just puts an arm around his shoulder. He says, don't worry, man. He said, you follow. I'll take care of this. I will make you a fisher of men. That's the king. That's the king. He owns the domain called the kingdom of God. When you enter the kingdom of God, you can be what you've never been. You can do what you've never been able to do. See, he's the king of the kingdom of God. He's the king of your faith. You say, I don't have that kind of faith. That's all right. You get in the kingdom of God with Jesus as your Lord. Man, you can have mountain moving faith. You say, I'm not bold like other people. I don't know those Christians. They're just bold and everything. I, I, I think it's a little weird. I don't want to act weird. And you, we go through all this stuff. But, uh, but the fact is that when you are friends with the king, Hallelujah. When, when you've got the king of glory living in you, man, sky's the limit. Everything he did, you can do. And so Peter, you know, Peter messed up a couple of times after that. He got in the way. You know, remember he sank after walking on the water. He, he tried to prohibit Jesus from going to Jerusalem and, and, um, and uh, being crucified and he was zigging when he should zag. He was making mistakes. His faith was not failing. It was just faltering. And the Lord just kept picking him up and moving him forward. Just kept picking him up and moving him forward. Hallelujah. And in fact, Jesus said to Peter, in Luke chapter 23, Jesus is at the Last Supper there. Uh, he's about to be crucified and leave. He knows what's coming. They, it hasn't dawned on them yet. And he says, Simon, Simon, Peter. So he's about to introduce a new topic in the table conversation. He said, pay attention, listen to me. Satan has demanded to have you all. The word there, have you, is plural. He wasn't talking to Peter alone when he said, Satan has demanded to have you and sift you as wheat. He said at the table, he said, Satan has been insisting and demanding to have all of you and to pick you apart, and to test you, and to see what you're made of. He says, but don't worry. I have prayed for you, and there's going to be a picking. There's going to be a threshing. There's going to be a trying. He's going to get his hands on you, and he's going to work you over. He said, but I've prayed for you. The king has prayed for you, and he'll never get to the faith that I put in your heart. You, your faith, will not fail. And he said, when you're strengthened and when you've gotten through this, encourage your brethren. 
So Jesus never gave up on that call. He said, Peter, I need you to be a leader. You're going to be a fisher of men. What has the Lord said to you? What vision has God put in your heart? When you met Jesus, what jumped into your heart? Many of you, all of you in one way or another, saw God working in your life in some way or another. Now, the specifics and the way you worked it out in your mind may not be exactly the way the Lord saw fit, but God has birthed in everyone that he saves some vision in their spirit of God doing things, great things in their life. And the Lord, the King, does not give up in his kingdom. His kingdom is a kingdom of fulfillment and of triumph, not failure, Amen. But triumph. And he said, Peter, don't worry. You're in, you're in the hands of the king. You will triumph. Somebody say amen. amen. So in his triumph over sin and Satan, Jesus becomes the king of the world. When he's raised from the dead, Adam failed and he let the devil have the crown. But Jesus took it back, man. And he took it back in rare form. Hallelujah. Colossians 2 says he triumphed over the devil, shaming him through the cross. Can you say amen? amen? Let me just close out before we have this altar call this morning by saying this to you. Satan is furious at the grace of God. He is eye-rolling, head-spinning, green-vomiting, furious out of his mind at the grace. How dare you? How could you possibly? He wanted Peter. He said, I could, I'll find what's wrong with this guy. It's so evident. I don't know why you've called him. I don't know how you could invest a call into this guy, Peter. See, he didn't know that love never fails. Right. Satan doesn't know anything about love. There's no love in him. He doesn't know that love never fails. And so he said, I could pick this guy apart. And by the time I'm done, you'll reject him. <laughs> He's in effect saying to Jesus, you'll reject him. I'll pick him apart. I'll find his faults. The devil's constantly probing you. He's constantly trying to show you your faults. He's picking at you, picking you apart, trying to convince you why you should give up on Jesus. But Jesus will never give up on you. If you hold on to him, he will bring you through. The Lord said, I knew all that was in you in the beginning. I knew what you were made of from the very start. You're not going to get there. You're not going to be victorious because of what you're made of, but because of what I'm made of. He is the great Redeemer King. Can you say amen? amen. Jesus is the one. In life, if you treat Jesus, this is think about Joshua leading them into the promised land. When you enter that land, if you realize that that land belongs to God and he's sharing it with you, then think this. If you treat Jesus in your life as the king, as your king, he will treat your life as his kingdom. If you treat Jesus as the king of glory, your king, if you live in such a way that Jesus is your king, you are acknowledging that he is the king, which he is, then he will treat your life as his kingdom. Everything that goes on in your life will fall within the boundaries of the kingdom of God. Jesus' answer for how he deals with everything 
will make his power and authority available to deal with the issues of your life. So our altar call this morning is simple. Come to this altar. Bring the issues of sin, dysfunction, bondage, and brokenness. Bring them to the altar because Jesus is king and you're acknowledging that he is redeemer king. And he, as you worship him as king, will treat those things in your life as his kingdom. And let me tell you, if you have any question about how Jesus deals with leprosy, blindness, lameness, sin, look at the, one of the greatest examples. Who knows the redeeming power and love of Jesus any better than the woman taken in adultery? The law says, killer, what do you say? He says, all right, well, if you're so sure of the law, then who's without sin? Go ahead and cast the first stone. When they all had walked away, Jesus said, where are your condemners? She said, I don't have any. He said, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. We're in his hands today. We're in his hands. Hallelujah. Glory to God. Treat him as king. And you'll find out why he's the king of mercy, the king of love, the king of grace. He'll treat every problem in your life as his personal kingdom issue. Somebody say, praise the Lord. Come on, stand your feet this morning.